Indeed, once we are in the new heavens and new earth, our lives will be a continual song of praise to the Lord, both in what we say, but also how we live our lives. But until then, we are pilgrims here on this earth. And that's the a guiding theme in Peter's first epistle, which we're going to find our text located in this morning. So I invite you to turn there, First Peter. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, and our text is the beginning of the second section of the letter. And it echoes a theme that's sounded right at the very beginning of the epistle. Peter opens the epistle writing, To the elect pilgrims who are dispersed. And then he reiterates that theme as he starts the second section in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. But Peter is writing this letter to people who do not feel at home where they are living. Whether they're Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians who he's writing to, it's a mixture, mostly Gentile, but they, none of them feel at home where they're living. The Jewish Christians have been exiled from Jerusalem and the vicinity because of the edicts of Roman emperors, and so they don't feel at home where they're living. And the Gentile Christians are perhaps still living where they've always lived, but they don't feel at home where they are because their faith has them at odds with their culture. So that's kind of the background to Peter's audience. But let's read the word of the Lord, 1 Peter 2, verses one through 12, and focusing on verses 11 through 12. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And here are the words of our text. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of 
visitation. There ends our reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Father, we thank you for these words that you have given to us through the Apostle Peter. We ask that you would open our hearts and that you would be present among us by the power of your Spirit as our teacher to form and shape our hearts and help us to understand our identity in this world and the calling that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Home sweet home. It's a phrase we often say when we pull into the driveway after being away for a time. But what does it mean to feel at home? That's a place where we feel safe and comfortable, free from threats and dangers, a place where we have everything we need from the food we enjoy to the family we like to be surrounded with and financial security to keep living a comfortable life. And it's a good and natural desire to feel at home. Well, throughout the vast majority of Canada's brief 155 or so years of existence as a country, Christians have been able to feel very much at home in our country. We've enjoyed the freedoms to meet for worship publicly, though in the past couple years we've seen quickly how easily that freedom can be stripped from us. But by and large, we've enjoyed freedoms to meet for worship. We enjoy the privilege of charitable status for Christian organizations that lowers our taxable income. But you see, culture is rapidly changing its view of Christians and the church. Culture is quickly going from indifference or tolerance, with whatever, to an intentional hostility toward Christianity and a discarding of any vestige of biblical uh, precepts. Christian institutions and organizations are also feeling the pressure of secular society closing in upon it. Leaders of Christian schools and their boards talk about how we wonder how long we can hold on to our Christian convictions on the one hand and our ability to grant OSSDs on the other hand. And Christian church leaders wonder, with bills like Conversion Therapy Bill or the Online Streaming Act and the push for anti-Islamophobia, how long will we be able to publicly declare biblical truth and publicly worship without government interference? How long will we be able to continue enjoying that blessing of charitable status? It's not being pessimistic to ask these questions because we trust in the sovereignty of God. It's being realistic to ask these questions. I recall last fall I was on a video call with a former Muslim lady who lives in our mother country, Great Britain. She was a former Muslim who became a Christian in 2011. She's now the founder of Defending Christ, Critiquing Islam Ministries. And she speaks regularly at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, London. And she was recently, at that time, attacked with a knife and her life was saved only because her arm took the brunt of the blow from the blade so it didn't get to her neck. And in the aftermath of that incident, the civil authorities banned her from publicly speaking about Jesus anymore in the country because she's inciting violence when she was the victim of violence. 
Does this not sound like Acts 4 and 5 all over again? The authorities even said to her, if you do so again, speak publicly about Christ, you will be arrested. That's our mother country. So let's not be surprised if we see these kind of things come our way. Now, these kind of things might sound discouraging to us as we think about how Christianity is indeed becoming marginalized and Christians are increasingly being discriminated against But Peter wants us to take heart. And he's calling out to us and reminding us that though Christianity might be in exile here in Canada, it's going to be okay for the church of Jesus Christ. In these two verses that serve as our text, Peter sets before us a perspective that ought to give us much encouragement. He is reminding us that we are but pilgrims who are just passing through this world, which itself is passing away. As Christians, this world, as it is now on this side of Jesus' return, is not our home. And we shouldn't feel overly comfortable and at ease here in the world. So let's consider Peter's plea for pilgrim living by looking, first of all, at our identity as pilgrims, Secondly, at our war as pilgrims. And third, our witness as pilgrims. Peter opens the epistle by addressing those to whom he's writing as elect exiles or elect pilgrims. And as he begins the second section of this letter, he addresses his readers in the same way, but he adds a synonym to reinforce the sense of identity that he's trying to instill in his readers' minds. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. He's emphasizing our identity, how he wants us to think of ourselves. Now, we don't use the word sojourner. What does that word mean? We don't use it very often. We'll take off the prefix so, and you can see the root word journey there. A sojourner is someone who's constantly journeying. He never settles down. As a matter of fact, he's precisely the opposite of a settler. A sojourner is someone who travels in foreign lands and wanders around, remaining a stranger, never putting down roots and becoming a permanent citizen. As a result, they don't feel like they belong. They feel like an outsider or an alien. And Alien is actually one of the definitions for the Greek word that's translated sojourner. And interestingly enough, the word alien is still actually a proper word used for residency status in Western nations today. I remember that when we were in the States during seminary for three years, each year we had to, as Canadian citizens in the States, fill out a tax-related form. And at the top, in large print, it said For use by alien individuals only. I didn't like to read that every year. It's not an identity that we chose for ourselves. You guys are aliens here. It didn't make us feel very at home in America. But that's the way it was. That was a yearly reminder for us that America is not our home country. And of course the t-shirt that grandma gave to our girls said, I am Canadian. That was a reminder of the true identity of our worldly citizenship. But Peter is reminding us in this epistle here that this world is not our home. Canada is not our home country. Our status here, our identity here 
is that of pilgrim or stranger or alien. Now, what are the implications of such a status? What does this mean in terms of living out our lives? Well, if you are a pilgrim or a sojourner, first of all, you're in the minority. The majority of people don't share your views and your values on things. You might be in school or in the workplace and often feel like the odd one out because of the way you dress or the way you talk, what you'll laugh at, what you won't laugh at, what you'll look at, and what you won't look at. You know, maybe you've had it that you're making small talk to try and connect with a neighbor or a friend and you exchange some laughs and it doesn't take long before this friend or neighbor says something off color. And you can't laugh anymore because that would condone what's being done. And all of a sudden there's this awkward pause in the conversation. Why aren't you laughing? And you don't feel at home among those people. As pilgrims, we're in the minority. As pilgrims, we also are marginalized. We don't possess all the privileges of citizenship. Imagine for a moment that you're living in some foreign country where all the people around you enjoy the opportunity to buy land, they enjoy their right to cast a vote, or access to free health care, or children, you can think of how there's free access to go borrow books from the local library, but you can't because you're a Christian. That's what it means to be marginalized, and Christians throughout the world experience things like this. I meet regularly with a Pakistani Christian who immigrated a dozen years ago, and he was telling me of how last year his sister was trying to find a place to rent, and after checking the place out and agreeing to rent it, she was on her way home and the landlord called back and said to her, Ma'am, sorry, we don't rent to Christians. Somehow he realized she was a Christian in the time between her visit and the time she drove home. And she's denied the opportunity to rent a house there because she follows Jesus. And this young man also tells me, he said, If you want to be a believer in Pakistan who actually lives the faith out, your job choices are limited to that of cook, cleaner, or cabbie driver because, by and large, the government discriminates against Christians and inhibits their access to education. But you know, it's not only in Pakistan where faith limits career options and access to education. Maybe you recall that Trinity Western University attempted to open a law school a few years back in BC. And the law societies of British Columbia and Upper Canada declared that any graduates from Trinity Western's prospective law school would not be permitted into their bars to practice law. And when this decision or this declaration was appealed by Trinity Western to the Supreme Court of Canada, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in favor of the Law Society's discriminatory decision and set a national precedent for marginalizing Christians who want to get into the practice of law. Or you'll hear stories within our Reformed churches of how Christians had to quit their job because the employer required them to put the LGBTQ plus rainbow in the signature panel of outgoing emails. 
And it's also getting harder and harder to get into the, or stay into positions of political power. Oh yes, we ought to strive to be involved in politics, but it's getting harder to be as a devout Christian. This shouldn't surprise us though. Think of the Israelites while they lived as slaves in Egypt, or how they lived as exiles in Assyria and Babylon. That was their experience for much of their history. And aside from a few notable exceptions, like Joseph, Obadiah, or Daniel and his three friends, most of the Israelites were underdogs. They were treated as second-class citizens. Sure, they were tolerated and treated in decent ways, but they were not allowed to generally occupy positions of power and influence. You see, we shouldn't be surprised when our Christian faith becomes a liability that reduces our chances of being in positions of great cultural influence. Jesus said, John 15, verse 19, If you belonged to the world, it would love you. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. You see, our status in this world is that of alien or pilgrim. And it means we are in the minority often, we're marginalized and often hated by the world. But you know what? This is an identity we need to get used to. We need to embrace this identity. And if you look throughout the Bible, flip through, it's normal for the people of God to experience this kind of discrimination and marginalization. What's not normal is the kind of blessings and comfort we've enjoyed here in Canada for the majority of her 150-some years of existence. Think, for example, of Abraham. He spoke of himself as an alien or stranger who wandered in the promised land. Or Jacob. Think of what he said to Pharaoh after he settled in Egypt. He reflected on his life and described it as a 130-year pilgrimage. Moses, he says he fled and became an exile or sojourner in the land of Midian. And Hebrews 11, which sums up the experience of the Old Testament people of God, we read they admitted they were strangers and aliens on earth. That they were looking for a homeland... What was yet to come, a better country, a heavenly one. You see, it's normal for the people of God to feel like pilgrims, oddballs, or aliens in the world. And where did this all start? When did the world start to not feel like home? Back where everything started in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, driving the man and the woman out and blocking entrance back in with the cherubim, with a flaming sword. That was the beginning of our experience as exiles in the world. That's when the world first started to no longer feel like home. And additionally, as followers of Jesus, we don't feel at home because we've been chosen out of the world, which at the same time means in our years and days here, we are chosen to be exiles as long as we live out our lives here. And we have a Savior who knows exactly what that's like. 
His love led him to live as an exile here on earth. He didn't come to earth because he was looking for another grand experience and got bored. He came to earth and lived as an exile because of his love for us. And he wanted to save us who deserve that exile. Jesus entered into exile some 2,022 years ago on that first Christmas day. I know we celebrate Christmas with lights and candles and Christmas trees, and that's fine and good if you want to do that. But remember, what we're celebrating is the entrance of Jesus into this world, which is day one of his exile. The moment that news of his birth reached King Herod's ears, what did King Herod try to do? Kill him. He was put on Herod's most wanted list. And so Joseph and Mary had to flee as exiles to Egypt. That's how Jesus' boyhood started. And when Jesus began his ministry when he was 30-some years old, launching from the town of Nazareth, Luke 4 tells us, they drove him out of town and took him to the brow of a hill and tried to throw him down the cliff. You see, throughout his life, though he's the king of the universe... He lived as a minority, a Jew in a land run by Rome. He lacked positions of earthly power. He wasn't a member of the Roman Senate. He wasn't a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He didn't sit on the throne in Jerusalem. He lacked the privileges of ordinary citizens. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. Jesus never felt at home here in the world. Lived as an exile from day one, and his life ended with what? A double exile. He was exiled outside Jerusalem, away from family and friends and loved ones, where he hung up between two criminals, suspended between heaven and earth. And he was exiled from the presence of his father, As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? But brothers and sisters, that's the gospel right there. Jesus' exile experience on the cross. He experienced the exile of hell so that we who believe in him don't have to. We never have to worry about being exiled from the presence of God if we trust in Jesus. Because he was exiled on the cross. But if all he experienced was exile on the cross, the good news wouldn't quite yet be good news, would it? He also rose, and his resurrection from the grave marked the beginning of his return trip back home. And his ascension marked the conclusion of his trip back home. And his return, when he comes again, marks the moment when he will raise us from the dead And wipe this world clean of all evil and restore it by creating a new heaven and a new earth. Do you trust in this Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Do you follow him as Lord and trust in his exile on the cross? If so, you will often feel out of place here and now in the world. But you will be right at home for all eternity when he returns and restores this earth to its original perfection. But in the meantime, Jesus pleads with us through his servant Peter to embrace our identity as pilgrims in the here and now. And doing so involves, this is our second point, a war within our own hearts. 
Living as pilgrims involves a war within our own hearts. Peter first sounded this call to war in verse, chapter 1, verse 14. Do not be conformed to your passions of former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then he restates this call for war, this call for abstinence war, in verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. And he's not merely talking about sexual abstinence outside of marriage, though that's a big part of it in our culture. He's talking about an abstinence war against all the passions of the flesh. And he lists a bunch of them in chapter 2, verse 1. So put away malice, that is, that desire to hurt or injure someone else with your words. Children, you ever have that? You just want to speak a nasty word just to show your hatred for someone else? Put it away. Abstain from it, Peter says. Put away deceit, hypocrisy, slander, and envy, which is related to covetousness. Think about for a moment that sin of envy. If, it doesn't, if you don't kill it, it will grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And then grow into spiteful feelings against those who have what you want. And as you're young, you might envy the candy someone else has. You get a little older, you envy the car someone else has. And you grow older, yet you envy their cottage or their cruise. You need to kill these sins or they will keep growing. And what's the ultimate danger? Each time we say yes to an evil desire, it's a victory for Satan. Our defenses against temptation are weakened and it's easier to say yes the next time. And where does it ultimately lead? We're told in Galatians 5, all who practice these works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you tolerate a little evil in your life, you'll soon become more comfortable with it. And then it'll become a pattern that marks your life. And before you know it, you will be at home with sin. And that is deadly dangerous. Because you set yourself on a path to eternal exile in hell. That's why it's so important to fight against sin. We need to kill sin or sin will be killing us. Satan is no mosquito who's content with a little bit of blood. He's a snake who wants to strangle us to death and drag us into his eternal kingdom of death. But brothers and sisters, if one of the reasons you're not feeling at home in this world is because you find yourself fighting against sin... That ought to be an encouragement to you. Because most wars in history are not good nor necessary. But the war against sin is absolutely necessary. To paraphrase J.C. Ryle, he said, A true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience within, but also war within. A glorious fight against sin, Satan, and the flesh is that sign of our union with Christ. 
And really, this is the Romans 7 Christian that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, verse 17. Actually, he says, The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so they, you do not do what you want. Yes, we have to fight against sin. Think of God's words to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. If you don't fight, you will fall. And maybe you say, yeah, but what about when I do fall? What about when I am strangled by these sinful passions? I feel powerless to stop. After we fall into sin, we need to get up and fall before the cross and confess our weakness to Jesus, confess our powerlessness to him, and trust his promise, 1 Peter 2.24, that he himself bore all our sins in his own body on the tree where he experienced exile for them. And knowing that we are loved by him and forgiven by him, Jesus will put the fight back in us and equip us to resist sin and to bear good fruit. So the plea for pilgrim living includes this call to wage war against the passions of the flesh. And then in our third point, it involves a call to witness to the world in which we live. Now we don't find the word witness in verse 12, but that's the purpose Peter identifies as the main reason to maintain pure living. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, by the things you do or the things you don't do, by the way you live, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Often the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of witnessing is speaking words. And there's a need for doing that, and Peter will get to that in the next chapter. But Christian witness starts with that which is visible, namely a godly Christian life. What people observe in your life and in your conduct will give credibility to your words and tell people whether or not they can trust what you say. Peter seems to be echoing Jesus in Matthew 5.16, where Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You see, unbelievers are observing or watching us. The word that Peter uses for observe in verse 12 is well translated in the NKJV. ESV translates it with see, and that can just have a sense of a passing glance. But Peter is saying that unbelievers are observing our life. To observe means you have a prolonged look. It's the idea of inspecting or being under someone's watchful eye, like a music teacher watching you as you perform your piece and giving feedback. Unbelievers are watching us in that careful way. And that's been our experience as we witness to the Muslim community. They're watching us closely and carefully to see if what we say lines up with what we do. One of the Muslims who's faithfully attended our discussion evenings for many years said not that long ago, and I, I paraphrase, but it's as close quote as I can get it. In all these years that I've been coming here to these discussion evenings, I've never heard a foul word from the mouth of any one of the Christians who's here. 
Actually, in all the casual interactions we've had over the years in each other's homes, during picnics, while camping, I've never heard a curse word from any one of you. And also, it's commendable how your women dress so modestly, not like so many others who call themselves Christians. And he said, you guys are also fit and in shape. You're clearly not given to gluttony. And because of what they observe in us, they trust us. And that's what led them to say, another one to say, you know, many of our people are realtors or contractors, but I hate to say it, I can't trust a single one of them. Is there a contractor or a realtor among your people you can recommend? They don't trust each other, but as a result of their observing of our lifestyle, they do trust us. And pray that they will also trust the gospel message that we bring them. So because we are under observation, it's clear that people notice how we live. Live in a winsome way. And though we be aliens, don't alienate yourself from the world. Though we might be exiles here, be engaged in the communities God has planted us. Jeremiah 29 Verses 4 through 7, Jeremiah wrote a letter to the exiles in Israel and he said, Build houses, plant gardens, get married and have children, seek the peace of this city where I've carried you into exile, and pray to the Lord for it. Why? Because God wants to use our godly living to draw others to faith in Jesus. And why does he want to do that? So that their lives will bring glory to God, both now and in eternity. No, not everyone will believe, but some will. And your Christian living is the starting point of Christian witness. Don't underestimate the way God can use your godly life. And then as we conclude our consideration of verse 12, we need to note the context of our witness that Peter mentions. Look at verse 12. He says, When they speak against you as evildoers. He doesn't say if, but when. This says something about the context of our Christian witness. We can and should expect to be spoken against and falsely accused. Peter's telling us it's not just the times when your neighbor is in need and you go give cookies or a meal that you witness to them. It's also the times when they falsely accuse you and slander you. How you respond to them is going to be a key part of your Christian witness. And again, this is normal for Christians. What led to Jesus' crucifixion? The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin went looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, and many false witnesses came forward. Or think of the first martyr of the early church, Stephen. They produced false witnesses who came up with a bunch of lies in order to accuse him and put him to death. And think of the Christians of the early church era. They were accused of holding antisocial values because there were places they wouldn't go and things they wouldn't do. They wouldn't go to the theater where there were live performances of sexual perversions. They're accused of being atheists because they had no idols. They're accused of not being submissive to Caesar because they won't call him Lord and offer him a pinch of incense. Accused of cannibals because they misunderstand what it meant to drink the blood of Christ. 
And proof of how pervasive these false accusations were is found in the fact that all 12 apostles were martyrs. And there was widespread persecution of Christians from then until now. Jesus says in Luke 21, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Verse 13, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, it doesn't mean we need to be a doormat and plead guilty when we're not guilty. But we need to let our conduct, our words, and our actions be marked by gentleness and respect, even when we are falsely accused. And that verse, 1 Peter 3.15, is couched in a context of suffering. When they ask you for an answer to the hope that is in you, give them an answer with all gentleness and respect. John Piper says that the heart of true biblical missions is suffering, not merely as a result of proclamation, but also as the means of proclamation. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be a pilgrim in this world. This world is not our home. We're a minority, we're marginalized, and we're at war with sin, Satan, and the fleshly passions of our own heart. And the way we live is where our witness begins. So where are you at this morning? Do you feel fully at home in this world? Are you trying to fit in all the time? If you do, if you love the world and its values and its views on things, and you're pursuing what it has to offer then this is all you've got to look forward to. You'll enjoy some fleeting pleasures, or many fleeting pleasures if you have the money to fund it, but you'll die, and though you be settled and comfortable now, you'll be unsettled and in the exile of hell for all eternity. You need to reevaluate your life and your goals and what you believe and what and who you're living for and come to Jesus. But if you find that you don't always fit in, that you often feel homeless, like an oddball, because you're a follower of Jesus and because you're fighting sin, then remember, we're not supposed to settle down here. We're not supposed to expect the church to be large, influential, and respected, as one pastor said. Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different and not in a good way. We are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and and comfort. The next decades in the West will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. And that's okay. After all, that's been the reality for most of God's people throughout history. But lest that sound so negative, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Though we don't always feel at home here and now on this earth, we have so much to look forward to. Matthew 5, verse 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek. That is, blessed are the lowly, the oppressed, the minority, the marginalized. They will inherit the earth. Though you not feel at home here and now, this earth will be your home forever. You'll be a permanent settler on planet earth when Jesus returns to renew it and restore it to its original state. And there we'll be forever at home with our God and with each other. Sinless existence for all 
eternity. Let's pray.